We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to John chapter 1. We are finally coming to the end of John chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning, verses 35, uh, through the end of the chapter. Many of you may have read uh, Robert Coleman's famous book written in 1963, The Master Plan of Evangelism. It is one of the most important books of our generation, a classic on what it means to be a disciple and what it means to make disciples, and even more so on how it was that Jesus made disciples. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do so. But in the master plan of evangelism, he says this, listen carefully. It all started with Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction his evangelistic strategy would take. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started together these men before he had ever organized an evangelistic campaign or even preached a sermon in public. And here's the line I want you to get. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. What he means is this is that the strategy of Jesus Christ has always been and always will be individual people. That the way in which Jesus has chosen to build his kingdom is through individual men and individual women. When Jesus comes to them by the power of his spirit, he convicts them of sin, he calls them to himself. And you just follow the gospel of John and how clear it is that when all of Jesus' disciples decide to go get something to eat, Jesus says, I'm just gonna go sit by this well. Why? Because Jesus knew exactly the lady that was gonna be there, exactly what she needed. And so Jesus went to talk to her specifically. He went to look at her. He went to meet with her. He went to communicate with her and invite her into his presence to know him. And so it is throughout the ministry of Jesus. It's just Jesus gathering individual people. And we know that Jesus loves people. We talk about this a lot. This is the first thing we learn in church, that Jesus loves people. But yet, even in the midst of knowing that Jesus loves people, this strategy of Jesus seems strange to us because it's not efficient. It's not strategic. I mean, imagine Jesus coming after hundreds and hundreds of years of promises that one day the Messiah would come and he's not only gonna come and save us from our sins, he's gonna come as a king and build his kingdom. He is the son of a David. He will rule and reign for all of eternity. And Jesus now comes and we imagine him coming to bring in this massive movement to change the history of the entire world and yet he does it one individual person at a time. That's not the most efficient way to do it. But his strategy not only tells us about the method of his ministry, it tells us about his heart. And so it is true when we see the way in which Jesus ministered, we do look at his methodology and we say, well, what does that say to me? And what does that say in which, about the way in which I should be making disciples? But even beyond that, we look at the way in which Jesus interacted with people and talked to people and gathered people. And I think more deeply touching to us, it says something about his heart. There is no one that tells us more of the glory of Jesus than John does. It's what makes John chapter 1 so incredible. Verses 1 through 18, going back to the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, there never was a time in which Jesus was not. He was with God. Why? Because he's the second person of the Trinity. But he was God. 
Jesus, who eternally existed as God, was also the agent of creation. It is through Jesus that everything was spoken. It is through Jesus that God began to create all of the heavens and the earth. It was through the word of Jesus and his power that everything was made. And yet Jesus is now coming as the word. He is the ultimate revelation of God. God in the flesh coming to dwell among us and as beholding his glory. And John wants us to be very clear on the glory and supremacy, greatness of Jesus. Even last week as we looked at John the Baptist, he does the same thing. He talks about the fact that Jesus was before him and Jesus was greater than him. John makes it clear that Jesus is the pre-existent and preeminent lamb who will come, to, come and baptize you with the very Holy Spirit of God. And so we get in the first 34 verses of John this really glorious and elevated picture of, of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what John wants us to have. He wants to really build our anticipation I mean, imagine that one coming to dwell among us. Imagine that one taking on the flesh. And with 34 verses of this, we just can't wait to see what it is that this great one is going to do. And the first thing that we see him do is walking dirty Galilean streets, gathering a really obscure group of people to himself. That's the first thing he does. The first thing he does is he just, he just walks these dirty streets and he starts to call people by name and gather people to himself. And you start to wonder, well, then what did John mean when he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as if the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. Well, how is it that we see his glory in that? Well, it is true. We will see his glory in his miracles. We will see his glory in all of the signs he does but I think John wants us to see that the greatest way in which God demonstrates his glory through Jesus Christ is by the way in which he cares for people. By the way he looks at us. By the way he ministers to us. By the way he talks to us. By the way he knows us. By the way he cares for us. And could it be that the greatest glory we see in Jesus is not what we expected, but it's the glory that you see when you realize that the one who created you knows you and loves you and longs for a relationship with you. And so John continues to emphasize the way in which Jesus, just moment by moment, step by step, was just seeing people and gathering people to himself. And it was John who has said that the reason he wrote this book is because he longs for us to have life in Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You could just keep saying, only life is found in Jesus. You got to go to Jesus for life, and that's a good thing to do. But one of the ways that John draws us to live life with Jesus is by showing us how much Jesus wants to live life with us. And there's something different about that. There's something that captures our heart a little bit more about that. It's one thing to say, Jesus is the only one that have life. You're never going to find life except you go to Jesus. True, we say that. But it's another thing to take story after story to just show you how much Jesus actually wants to live life with you and how much he wants to be with you and how much he enjoys your presence and how much he is thrilled when you come to spend time with him. And could it be that being captured by that is what really makes you want to give yourself so much to him just because you know how much he wants you. It's exactly what we see as Jesus begins his ministry. The first time we hear him speak, the first time we see him act, and what we begin to see, not only about his methods, but about his heart. 
You might remember that last week, verse 29 started with the next day, those words, the next day. And verse 35 begins with the next day. And verse 43 begins with the next day. Why? Because it's John's way of taking us from eternal existing God to Jesus on earth, moving and walking and working. And so the movement begins for the very first time. There was this introduction that explained Jesus to us and who he was. And now Jesus is on the move. What I want to do this morning is because this is a narrative text, I really just want to walk through it together with you and then make some implications at the end. But I just want to walk through what happens as Jesus begins his ministry, starting in verse 35. First thing it says is that the next day, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. Let's stop there for a minute. It is important for us to remember and know what a disciple is. If we're confused on this, nothing else matters from this text. A disciple is a learner or a follower, but it's more than that. It is someone who wants to learn from someone else, someone who wants to be like someone else, but the way in which they choose to do that is by being with that person. You've got to hear this. This is going to change the way in which we think about discipleship. So it is not just learning. It is not just knowing. It is not just becoming like. It is doing all of that in the process of being close to someone. The issue of discipleship is always proximity. It's close, closeness. So it's not just saying, I would like to hear you teach. And I would like to know the things you do. I would like to know what you command. Being a disciple is saying this. I'm so drawn to you. And want to know you and be like you and hear from you. That I'm going to choose to live life with you. I'm going to be close with you. That's what discipleship, at the core of discipleship is proximity. It's relationship. It's closeness. It's not distance. It's being closely connected to the one who you want to be a disciple of. And so it says that John has two of these. Why? Because John's ministry was growing. He was preaching. He was baptizing. Remember last week, they sent a delegation to figure out exactly who he was. And so John also had gathered some disciples. There were some who saw John and heard John and said, we want to know more about you. And so we're going to join you in what you do. And so here they are with John as John's ministering. And it says in verse 36, then John looked at Jesus and he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, it's going to be important in a moment, and so I want you to go ahead and circle the word, and he looked, the idea of looked. Because there's a lot of words that could have been used here. But John uses a word that means an intense stare. It means to gaze at something. It means to fix your attention on something. And this is about to tell us something really beautiful about the heart of God in a moment. But I want you to just imagine what happens to John. He's preaching, he's baptizing, he's doing his thing. And then all of a sudden, the one he had been talking about shows up. And John sees him. And John is aware of who he is, that he is, in fact, the Lamb of God. He is the Passover Lamb that saves us from our sins. He is, in fact, the Lamb that God provided Abraham to spare his son Isaac. He is the Lamb sacrificed morning and night in the tabernacle. He is the Lamb who was slain in Revelation 5, whom all people will one day worship and bow down to. He is the Lamb. And John sees him, and he's captivated for a moment. He literally stands and it's as if nothing else is going on. Nobody else is there. He just fixes his gaze completely on Jesus. He's consumed in that moment with one person and it's Jesus. And he just declares, behold the Lamb of God. Now John was a great disciple maker. We, the way we know this is because of what his disciples did. 
Remember, John was very concerned that no one would get really wrapped up in him. His whole ministry was about who he was not. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the great prophet. I simply am a voice that have come to tell you about the word. He's the word. I'm the voice. He's the point. I'm just the pointer. And so John was constantly emphasizing that it's all about Jesus. Just go back to Jesus. Don't get caught up in me. It's about Jesus. And the way we know that John did that really well is that at the very moment in which John says, there's the Lamb of God, John's two disciples leave him and go follow Jesus. And they don't ask, hey, should we go or should we not go? They knew that it was time. They knew that when Jesus showed up, John was no more. John had his moment. He had his time. He served his purpose. And now it's all about following Jesus. And I love what it says here. It says, John said, behold the Lamb of God in verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Because they had been trained to see Jesus. They had been trained to love Jesus. They had been trained to want Jesus. They had been told over and over, when Jesus comes, leave me and follow him. And they did. So now all of a sudden, Jesus has his first two disciples. One of them's name is Andrew. We know the other one is going to be John the Apostle who wrote this book, not John the Baptist. And so Andrew and John leave John the Baptist and they begin to follow Jesus. And this is a big deal. And uh, they get an incredibly warm welcome for Jesus. I mean, if you just want to know what a warm welcome looks like, it looks like this. Look at this. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what are you seeking? In other words, what do you guys want? That's the warm welcome they got from Jesus. They just left everything to follow Jesus and they're following behind and Jesus knows they're following. And so Jesus turns to them and he looks and he says, what do you guys want? That's the reception. It seems really strange. It seems a little cold, doesn't it? And you would kind of think, Jesus, you know, it'd probably be nice here. Like, you're trying to gather some disciples. Let's get these two. Like, they're, they're willing to come. Let's get them. But Jesus does this. He does this. Jesus goes up to a blind man and says, what do you want? Well, everybody knows what he wants. But he still asks. He goes to a lame person. He'll do this here. We'll see this in a couple of chapters. Say, what do you want? <laughs> what do you think I want? There's many times in which Jesus will ask an extremely obvious question that everyone knows, but Jesus does this because he wants to hear from you. He wants to know what's on your heart. So Jesus didn't say, oh, I assume you're coming to follow me. Jesus just says, what do you guys want? And it's in the process of Jesus asking that question that they begin to tell him what it is that they want. Jesus really demands us articulate what it is we want from him. Now, one of the ways in which this has practically helped me, this is just kind of parenthetical, but I think it'll be helpful for you, particularly you parents, is that when it comes to helping our kids understand the things of the Lord, we're often so quick to tell them what they want and what they need to do. And so they begin to ask questions and they say, well, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. You need to do this and you need to do this. But can I just say that a better way to do that is to ask them what they want. Like, what is God doing in your heart? What do you feel like is happening? What, what do you think God is doing? And allow them to articulate. And you'll say, well, they can't. They don't understand. Well, then great. Just keep planting seeds and keep asking the questions. When they're able to articulate it and say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Well, praise the Lord. God's working in their heart. But we have to be careful not to always put the answers into their mouths. But ask them, what are you seeking? What do you want? And that's exactly what Jesus did in his wisdom. He wanted to know what they really wanted. Do you just want to learn from me? Do you just want to follow me? Do you just want my teaching? Do you just want to me to give you kind of a new idea? What do you want? And so they answer him and their answer is everything. 
It says in verse 38, and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now that might seem like just a practical question. What do you want? Well, we want to know where you're staying. But again, John picks a very strange word to communicate that. He didn't say that the disciples said, where are you sleeping tonight? Where's your house? Who's putting you up for the evening? None of that. He used the word staying. I believe that word staying is the most important word for us from this text this morning. Because that word staying is a word that John uses over and over and over in scripture. Most importantly, it's the word he uses in John 15 when he says that what it really means to be with Jesus is to abide with Jesus. Abide means to stay closely connected to someone, to stay with someone for a long time. And what Jesus is going to teach us in John 15 is if you want to bear fruit, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, well, the way in which that happens is by proximity to Jesus, closeness to Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus. And what you're going to learn as we walk through John is Jesus is always pushing you to closeness. He's always inviting you to closeness. He's always saying, listen, the, the real issue here for me is your closeness to me, spending time with me. And he uses that word to communicate what the disciples really wanted. What are you seeking? What do you want? We want to stay with you. We want to go where you're going. We want to be with you. And so they had been with Jesus. They had been with John. And then all of a sudden they say, we don't want to be with John anymore. We just want to be with you. So Jesus, in asking that question, opens up for us the heart of the disciples. And what the disciples are simply saying is, we want to stay with you. We want to be where you are. We want to be close to you. And so it is that they begin to follow because Jesus responds, verse 39, well, come and you will see. And the sweetness of that is that the very thing that they wanted is the very thing that Jesus wanted to give them. So the first thing Jesus said is not, all right, go and tell. He says, no, come and see. Because Jesus knows that the way in which these disciples are gonna be transformed and be prepared to do what God's called them to do is by a lot of closeness with Jesus. Listen to me. The way in which God is preparing you to be the person he wants you to be, to do everything he's called you to do is a lot of closeness to Jesus, a lot of time with Jesus. And so without giving them any other command, he just says, well, listen, well then come and be with me. Which right there reveals the heart of Jesus who just longs to be with his disciples. And so Andrew and John come and they, they begin to follow Jesus. And it says there in the end of verse 39, so they came and they saw where he was, here it is, staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And so three times this word is used to emphasize that the whole point of this text is Jesus was inviting the disciples to be with him, to walk with him, to know him, to spend time with him. God does not change us from a distance. He changes us from closeness. And so now Jesus has his first two disciples. Verse 40, it says, one of the two who heard John speak, followed Jesus, was Andrew. And so here's Andrew who has decided to follow Jesus and he finds his brother, Simon Peter. Now he finds his own brother and he says to him, we found the Messiah, a massive statement. We have found the promised one. We have found the one we've been waiting for. This is in fact the Christ. We've got him. We found him. No one else has seen him, but we've seen him. We found him. And then it says this, so he brought him to Jesus. Can I just say, that's a beautiful phrase right there. He just brought him to Jesus. He just brought his friend to Jesus. He didn't do anything else. He just brought him to Jesus. Remember when I told you that that word looked is very important in verse 36 because it's going to be really meaningful for us in a minute. 
That word look means to give your complete attention to someone, to fix your gaze in a way that is very difficult to get anyone to do in these days. We're always looking at our phones or distracted by a million things. This means giving someone your absolute full attention. You're gazing at them, you're looking at them, and they know by that that there's only one thing that matters in this moment, and that's you, the one I'm looking at. It's what John did to Jesus, and it's what Jesus does when he sees Peter. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him. He gazed at him. He looked directly at him. And in that moment, Simon knew that his full attention was being received by Jesus. He said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Both of those words mean rock. He looks right at Peter. He gazes at him as if nothing else is going on, as if there's no other disciples and nothing else to get done. He looks directly at Peter in the eyes, communicating to Peter his value and how much he loves him. And he says, I'm going to call you rock. Peter is not a rock. We'll read the rest of the story eventually. He's not a rock. He's anything but a rock. He is unstable in a thousand ways. He's this all the time. And when it really counts, when Jesus really needs someone to stand for him, Peter doesn't. He denies him three times. He says, so why in the world would Jesus look at him and say, hey, I'm gonna call you rock. Listen, because in that moment, Jesus, looking directly at Peter as if no one else was there, is saying to Peter, I'm not going to call you what you've been. I'm going to call you what you're going to be. I'm about to completely redefine you. I am going to change you in a thousand ways. And at the end of my three years with you, you're going to think it still didn't happen, but it's happening, I assure you. It's going to happen. I'm going to change you. And so all of a sudden, there, there's this difference in Jesus just gathering a bunch of people into which Jesus is individually going to people and saying, hey, I want you and I know you and I'm gonna change you and I'm gonna make you something incredible. This is the ministry of Jesus. So now he's got Andrew and he's got John and he's got Simon who now is known as the rock. It says in verse 43 that while Jesus kind of essentially has waited as these disciples have been brought to him, Jesus now chooses a disciple for himself. 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Lake Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Why? Because that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The, the, the invitation to be a disciple is you trust who Jesus is and your response to that is to then follow him. Because remember, all Jesus is really wanting is gathering a group of people who will be in his presence. Gathering a group of people who will be changed as they spend time with him. It's all about the proximity. And so he says, follow me. Now verse 44 says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael. And so these guys are coming to Jesus and they're finding other people. Now, he goes to Nathanael and he says this, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is a big statement. It's as big as Andrew's. We found the Messiah. So Peter goes, he sees him. He says, okay, great. Everybody so far has just, has just followed Jesus. So here's Andrew and John. They see Jesus. They just, they just go, no questions. Peter, okay, I'm just gonna go and I'm gonna follow Jesus. You see Philip here, he just finds out about it and he follows Jesus, says, follow me. And he says, okay. And there's people like that. There's people who just hear the word and they immediately say, follow. But Nathaniel is not one of those people. For some of you who find it more challenging to follow Jesus, that you're a little skeptical of Jesus, you're not quite sure about Jesus, Nathaniel's a friend for you, 
okay? He's a friend for you because he's not convinced. It doesn't make sense to him because he has spent his entire life imagining what the Messiah was going to be and this guy certainly doesn't look like it. And you can see from his response, he says this in verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So I don't know exactly what it is, but there's some rivalry between Galilee and Nazareth. The Galileans seem to look down on those from Nazareth. And so the Galileans would say, listen, you're asking me to give my whole life to a guy from Nazareth? This does not make sense. I, I can't imagine this. We've spent our lives looking down on those from Nazareth. I, I tried all week to figure out how I could describe this to you to help you to understand it. And, and this, this is all I've got. Imagine someone comes to you and says, listen, I found the Messiah. This is Jesus and he wants to change your life. He, he's the one, this is it. And the moment you meet him, he has on an Alabama football shirt. And it's Jesus just roll tide. To which you think, I don't think that's the guy. <laughs> like there's no way that's the guy. I mean, just immediately you would think, I, I don't know. I, can't, I, I don't know if I can follow him. And, and I just want you to know, Nathaniel is going through the same thing. He's going through, I had this idea and this vision of what he would be. And, and, a, and a man walking dirty Galilean streets, gathering random people is not the guy I was expecting. I don't know if he wanted the Messiah King warrior. I don't know what he wanted, but this was not it. But I love this so much. So Philip, who went to get him, doesn't try to argue with him. He doesn't open up to the Old Testament and say, turn to Genesis chapter three, where I'm gonna tell you the first of all the prophecies for Jesus Christ. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't give him a case for Christianity. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't say anything except, come and see. Come and see. The reason is, is because you can't argue anyone into the faith. Is there a reason for, uh, for uh, apologetics and the need to talk to people about the reliability of the Bible and uh, the authenticity of the, all of those things? That all matters, but you will never ultimately argue anyone to giving their life to Christ. Someone will come to Christ because they've met Jesus. And in the process of you talking to them and introducing them to Jesus, God is gonna do a work in their heart, not because they got argued, but because Jesus worked in their hearts. And so I love that Philip doesn't stop and do a Bible study. He said, just, hey, let's just come, and, come with me. Come and see, come and see. Because what's about to happen is that Jesus is about to do something Philip could have never done. This is why I encourage you always to just invite people into your life and into your home and, and into the church where they can experience God's presence and see God at work and see through you the love of Christ and the life of Christ. Why? Because sometimes the greatest evangelistic strategy is just come and see. Just come get close to Jesus and see. So the greatest thing happens. Jesus knows he's skeptical and he knows some of you are. He knows some of you are struggling. He knows some of you have questions. He knows some of you are wondering if this whole thing is real and if it's worth giving your whole life to. He knows that. He knew you had that question before you had that question. So look what he says. Verse 47, now Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So in that, he knows his name and he knows something about him to which Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? How do you? How do you know me? Jesus responded in an incredible way. He says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So what he's simply saying is this. He's saying, oh, I know you. I, I saw you before you ever came here. Before Philip ever got you, I, I saw you. 
No, I know exactly who you are. I, I know everything about you. I, I know where you came from. I know your heart. I know your steps. I know your desires. I know your ambitions. Nathaniel, I know everything about you. And just the beauty of him calling him by name Nathaniel. There's something about being called by name Nathaniel. An Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Well, I saw you under the fig tree. Well, Nathaniel can't believe this. Yeah, this is exactly what he needed. He needed some evidence that was God. And so he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It didn't take much, did it? I mean, that's a lot, knowing his name, and there he was before. But he just says, you are, you are the one. Now, I, I want you to feel this with me. I really believe right now at this moment, Jesus kind of gets a little smirk on his face, and he just kind of shakes his head a little bit. He kind of smiles and looks at Nathaniel, kind of like that. Brother, you have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> I really, I just think, just, I want you to feel the sweetness, the tenderness, the, the kindness, the affection of Jesus just looking and saying, Nathaniel, listen. Look at what he says. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you're going to see greater things than these. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to see heaven open and the angel of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Nathaniel, you have not seen anything yet. Like, I just blew you away by knowing your name and knowing that I saw you under a fig tree. I could have guessed that. Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than this. And then Jesus used this intentional language that takes us back to Genesis 28. All of his language there is very intentional, taking us back to Jacob's vision and dream of a ladder where there was this traffic between heaven and earth, ascending and descending. And so what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel is this, Nathaniel, listen, you're about to see God come. Like God has descended. He has taken the ladder and he has come down to earth. And Nathaniel, that's me, the one who is calling you, the one who is inviting you, is God in the flesh. Nathaniel, you're about to see my glory. You're about to see miracle upon miracle and sign upon sign. You're gonna see my glory but I have to imagine at the end of Nathaniel's ministry, having seen all of the glorious displays of power by Jesus, Nathaniel might have still said, the most glorious thing I ever saw is when Jesus knew my name. And when Jesus looked right at me and said, hey, I want you. Why don't you come and, and follow me? At the end of John, it says there were so many miracles that Jesus did, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. But I absolutely believe that at the end of his life, Nathaniel said better than all of that stuff was just that moment when I realized God knew my name and he knew everything about me and he loved me and he invited me to himself. So now here's Jesus walking the dirty Galilean streets, an obscure group of people who have no idea what's in store for them. They have no idea they're walking with the son of man, the promised one of Daniel 7, and they're about to see God in all of his glory. Now, this is a really important text. It's important for us primarily at first because it shows us what it means to be a disciple, not defined by a book, but defined by Jesus. Because this is Jesus gathering disciples. And what's amazing is maybe what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, okay, Nathaniel, you wanna be my disciple? Stop, say a prayer, and then you go and do your thing. He doesn't take Andrew and John at the moment they come, say, stop, repeat these words after me. If you believe it in your heart, you're gonna be okay. And then just go and do your thing. He doesn't say that. Jesus never does that once. He never one time has them stop and say a prayer and then follow him. He never does that. 
Now listen, the Bible says the way in which we're saved is we call upon the name of the Lord. There has to be a moment in which you see Jesus crucified in your place. And when you realize that the reason Jesus died is to be the payment for your sin so that he could spare you from hell and take the wrath of God upon himself and you throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus and say, Jesus, save me from my sin. I believe in your death, burial, and resurrection as the means in which I get saved and get new life. And you say, Jesus, I want you. But for too long, we have defined all of discipleship as coming forward, filling out a card, saying a prayer, and then going about your way as if nothing ever happened. And that's not what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who says, I, I, I believe that Jesus is the way, truth, and the life. I believe it. I believe there's nothing else but Jesus. And so because of that, I want to know him and be like him. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to get close to him. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's all about proximity to Jesus. And so I can't tell you how many times in my ministry I've heard something like this. Well, I became a Christian when I was eight, but I didn't really become a disciple until I was 28. There is no category for that. I need you to hear me. There's no category for I was a Christian, but now I became a disciple. That's not a category because a Christian is a disciple and a disciple is a Christian. You're not a Christian unless you chose to become a disciple. You're not a Christian by just saying, oh, I believe those things, but never got close to Jesus. Being a Christian is closeness to Jesus. Being a disciple is intimacy with Jesus. At the very core of our faith is not a prayer we pray. It's a person we've come to know and worship and love and be consumed with. And so if we have defined discipleship as some one moment of decision, when reality is discipleship is a life with Jesus Christ. And in the process of that, you're changed. In the process of that, you realize that he knows you and he loves you and you're transformed by him. And one of the greatest fears of my heart is that somehow moving through churches like this, hell would be filled with people who prayed a prayer and filled out a card, but they never got close to Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't walk with Jesus. And they're going to say, well, I, I prayed a prayer, but it wasn't about a prayer. It's about Jesus. What a sad thing. What Jesus is saying here is that his invitation to us is an invitation to closeness to him. And one of the things that tells us is that our commission is to make disciples. And we say, well, what does that look like? Well, every disciple is called to make disciples. It look a lot like what Jesus did here. It's not me standing in front of the masses and inviting people to him. It's about individual people getting invited to Jesus Christ. Did Jesus stand before the masses and preach? Yes. Did people from that follow him? Yes. But the primary method of Jesus was always individual people leading individual people to Christ. So can I just, I just need to say another thing I hear a lot? Boy, pastor, I tell you what, we need to see more people saved and baptized. What they mean is this. Pastor, you need to do a better job of drawing the net at the end so more people get saved. That's what they mean. That's what they always mean. There's some deficiency in that. What I want to say to them is, is this. I agree. Go lead somebody to Jesus. Like, go, go tell somebody about Jesus. Like, that's how we see people baptized. Someone tells them about Jesus. Do people get saved hearing me preach? They do. I don't think that's the normal way people get saved. I think the normal way people get saved is someone says, come and see. Well, I got a lot of questions. All right, come and see. 
Come to church, come to my family group, come to my community group, come to my house, share a meal, just watch our family interact, just come and see. That's the way people get saved, through that slow work of investing in individual people. I keep thinking about Matthew 13, the parable of the mustard seed. There's this massive kingdom that it's growing and the way it grows with mustard seeds. Like this tiny little insignificant little speck. Well, the way in which the kingdom grows is one of those at a time. And so Jesus has chosen that the means by which he is gonna build this massive kingdom that will one day rule and reign on earth is a bunch of individual people just putting mustard seeds of the gospel until all of a sudden we see the growth of the kingdom. We make disciples by proximity to Jesus and proximity to people. It is 100% people-oriented, slow, intentional, personal work. But it's not just about the methods. It's about the heart. I found myself deeply moved by this text this week. I, 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 I opened up the text and thought, oh great, I get to preach on making disciples. And I was excited about that. I was surprised at how deeply I was moved by the way in which Jesus did this. And the reason is, is because John wants us to see the glory of Jesus. Even in this text, he gives us six titles for Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Rabbi. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. He's the Son of Man. Jesus in all of his glory. And then there he is just walking a dirty street and saying, hey, I want you. Come follow me. Hey, hey, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, hey, I know you. I love you. And why don't you come and, and be with me? I just don't think I had ever been confronted that much with how personal this is and how the invitation is not simply an invitation just to believe something and to grasp something and to do something, but the invitation is to be with someone. You've heard it said before that Christianity is more about being than doing. I think we know that, but I don't think we realize the extent of that, that the invitation of Jesus is you come stay with me, you be with me, and in the process of that, I'm gonna tell you everything that needs to be done, but I'm just gonna do it a little bit of a time. And see, here's the thing. The challenging thing for me is getting up here and telling you everything you need to do because I don't know everything you need to do. And so the emphasis of my ministry is to get you to close as Jesus as you can and trust Jesus to tell you what to do next. Because what, what Philip said is, I don't know, Nathaniel, what you need, but Jesus does, so come, come and get close to Jesus. And the whole feel of my ministry, the theme of my ministry, is to get you to spend time with Jesus, to be close to Jesus, and to trust that Jesus knows exactly the questions you have, and he has the exact answer that you need. He knows what's next. Because I think the most staggering thing about this is the realization that Jesus did not come to build an army of soldiers. He came together a group of people who were changed by his presence. Let me say that again. Jesus did not come to simply to build an army of soldiers or workers. He came together people who will be changed by his presence. People that will know him and walk with him. And as a result of that, a result of that living and loving union with Jesus, as a result of staying with Jesus, they will be changed. And it's really what God is, is stirring up in my heart for myself and for you. One of the things God keeps saying to me is that, that this is what it's about. What it's about is your closeness to Jesus. It's about the process of God changing you and, 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 and moving you and directing you and telling you what's next. But all of that comes not distant from him, but closeness to him. My vision for your life is to be changed by his presence. And I think what's gonna happen is this. The more you get close to him, the more you're gonna fall in love with him. And isn't that the goal? Isn't the goal of people passionately in love with Jesus Christ? 
who will say that the greatest desire of my heart is just, yeah, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. We talked about last week that every pastor just pleads with everybody to share the gospel. But the reality is oftentimes that doesn't come out of you because it's not in you. You talk about what you love. And so I want you to passionately love Jesus. And the way that happens is just getting you close to Jesus. The invitation is this. Just come and be with me. I'll show you where to go. I'll show you what to do. Don't worry about that. Just come and be with me. That's what Jesus is inviting every one of us into today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.